on the calendar, church calendar and traditional, uh, today is Palm Sunday. It's the day when Jesus triumphantly, as foretold, entered Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a humble donkey. And the citizens of Jerusalem spread palms before him and their garments before him, and they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest heaven, save us. The one who is promised is here. And then by the end of that week, they were shouting again, but that time it was crucify him, crucify him. And we look at that and we shake our heads and, you know, and we're amazed. We say, how in the world could that have happened? What, what were they thinking? But we need to also look inward and know that that is every single one of us. And apart from the grace of God at work in our life, apart from the Holy Spirit's power, outside of that, we would continue to turn away from the only one that we should be turning to. And instead of repenting, we would also continue in rebellion. But for grace. But for grace. We continue in our series that we've been in now for, this is the fourth week, What Are the Odds? And we're looking at Isaiah chapter 53, and we're examining very specific prophecies and predictions about the coming Messiah, Jesus, what He would accomplish, what He would do, what would happen to Him. And we're seeing a direct connection in the New Testament of how that was completely, uniquely fulfilled by the Lord Jesus. We are definitely past in our study and in our focus, we're past Palm Sunday, and we're also even past Him going to the cross. We're ahead in those events as we look at Isaiah 53. We've already focused on uh, His trial, you know, His arrest, His trial, His torture, and Him going on to the cross and suffering there. Today, our focus is going to be on verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 53. So go ahead and look at that with me. Isaiah 53, verses 8 through 9. And again, um, just by way of reminder, making sure we're all on the same page, what we're going to see here is after he has already gone to the cross, and it's the events following that. Isaiah 53, 8-9 says this about the Lord Jesus. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. That oppression and judgment, by the way, completely undeserved by Him. Completely unfair to Him. Not at all what He should have experienced. But nonetheless, it was oppression and judgment. He was taken away just like the, the lamb that we looked at last week, the lamb led away to slaughter. And who considered his fate? Who thought about it? Who gave mind to it? Who cared about what was happening to him? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. There's substitution again. Substitution. We talked last week about the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, was a willing scapegoat 
and a humble lamb. We talked about the atonement that he went to, and we connected that to Leviticus 16 with the, the two goats. One was a scapegoat sent away alive with the sins of the people, symbolically placed on that goat and sent away into the forgotten land. And the other was indeed sacrificed, both for atonement. We see that here again. He was taken away. He was cut off. He was struck down, not because of anything that he had in himself that was worthy of that, not because of anything he deserved. Why? Isaiah points to himself and to his people, and we're right there, church. We're right there with them. It was because of rebellion, because of sin, because of iniquity. That's why he was cut off. That's why he was struck in place of Isaiah and his people and all people after him, in place of all of us, in our stead. And, and do you see the, the violence that's expressed here? Cut off, struck. Those are, those are violent statements and terms. What happened to Jesus wasn't a light thing. It was violent. It was final. And it was ultimately by His own Father. The judgment and the wrath that we deserved, that should have fallen on us, fell on Jesus. And it fell with the will and with the purpose and by the hand of His own Father. And He did it for you. He did it for you. And He did it for me. Verse 9, after Jesus died on the cross, after He gave His final breath, verse 9 talks about, foretells and predicts what would happen after that. Verse 9 says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked, which was the practice for all who were executed, all who were put to death in the way that Jesus was, they were assigned a grave. It was a common, unmarked grave meant to focus on the dishonor and the disgrace of those who were killed. So because Jesus was sentenced to die and die on a cross, a criminal's death, a traitor's death, a rebel's death, the worst death, he was also, in connection to that, he was assigned a common criminal's grave, an unmarked, dishonored, undignified grave. That's what he was meant to go to by the authorities. That was the plan, their plan. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But look, look at the contrast. But he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. In other words, though he was falsely tried, falsely accused, and falsely put to death as a criminal, as one deserving a disgraceful death, as one who was lumped in with those who had committed violence and acted and spoken deceitfully. God, of course, knew that wasn't the case, and He wanted to make sure that even in His burial, He was buried as He was an innocent person. So though the plan of the authorities, the tradition of the day, was for him to be assigned a grave with the wicked, he instead, in the sovereignty of God, 
was placed by a rich man in his death because he did no violence. He had not spoken deceitfully. And we see this part is what I want to focus on. This is exactly what was uniquely and completely fulfilled in the New Testament. Draw your attention with me to Matthew chapter 27. Look at that with me. Matthew 27, verses 57 through 60 is going to be what we look at in this passage. Matthew 27, verses 57 to 60. In Matthew 27, 57, we hear these words. This is after the crucifixion has taken place, after Jesus has died. And the narrative reads this way. When it was evening, there came a rich man. Sounds familiar, right? We just read that was what was going to happen. God is a promise-keeping God. God makes sure what is predicted comes to pass when it's His prediction. When it was evening, there came a rich man. Imagine that. Like God was in control all along, right? There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. God used two men named Joseph in the life of his son Jesus, in the life of his role as Messiah here on earth. One was to guide and direct him at his early stages, right after his birth, as he grew. One was to honor him right after his death. Two men named Joseph, both available to God to use in the life of his son, Jesus. This rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus, look what he did. Look how he was used of God to fulfill what God promised and predicted through his servant Isaiah. Verse 58, he, Joseph, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, verse 60, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. A tomb that no doubt he had intended would be used for him and his family. He gave it to the Lord Jesus to be used for his burial, to honor him in an honorable burial. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, That would have been the custom, and he went away. A stone that was intended and thought to be permanent, no doubt, wasn't going to be there very long. We'll talk about that next week. But that's what happened. That's what took place. To directly fulfill, just like we've seen time and time again through our study as we've looked at these verses in Isaiah 53, this is no different. Even after Jesus' death, even in His burial, God's Word remained strong and sure and true, and every detail of what was predicted was fulfilled. You know what that tells us, church? No matter who has let you down, no matter who has lied to you, no matter how you've been deserted, no matter how you've seen promises broken, no matter how many you've broken yourself, God doesn't break His promises. And if you can believe what was promised in Isaiah 53 and you can see it fulfilled here in Matthew, you can believe everything else that God has said. You can believe it. You can rest in it. You can trust it. You can live according to it. It's what God does. His Son had died. Jesus was dead. He wasn't passed out. There's 
you know, people who obviously uh, spend all day, all their time trying to disprove the truth of Scripture, trying to disprove the events of, of Holy Week and the crucifixion itself, and, and try to disprove and discredit the resurrection, even though it's the most verifiable fact in all of history. They still, they did at the beginning, right after it happened, and all the way through to today, they try to disprove and discredit, and they say, oh, he didn't really die. He, he was just, you know, he was succumbing to his, his wounds and the loss of blood and all of that. And he was just extremely dehydrated and, and he passed out. Or maybe he was in a coma, but, but then he was revived when he was in the tomb. The coolness and the moisture of the air, it revived him. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and and I, I've got some, um, some beachside property you know, here in West Virginia that I'd like to sell you, right? No, Jesus wasn't passed out. He wasn't in a coma. He wasn't mostly dead. The author of all life was no longer alive. The very one that breathed the breath of life into Adam stopped breathing. Jesus was dead. But He wasn't done. Jesus was dead, but He wasn't done. Amen? God was still at work, even in the burial of Jesus. Just as He was at work in His death on the cross, He was at work in the burial, in the very tomb that Jesus was placed in. God was still at work doing what only God could do. He was addressing and dealing with all that had transpired from the fall in the garden on. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, Genesis 2, the promise was that if you eat of this one tree, you can eat of anything else in all the garden, but if you eat of this one, just this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat of its fruit, you will surely die. That was the promise. Adam and Eve rebelled and they ate of that fruit. And sure enough, God was true to His Word, all of His Word, even the uncomfortable, unpleasant parts. He's still true to it. So He pronounced judgment. He said, dying now, you will die. It's going to happen. But in Genesis 3.15, He gave a promise. And it was the very first prophecy of the coming Messiah. He said about the serpent, He, the coming One, the promised One, the Savior, He will crush your head, but you will bruise His heel. The cross of Christ, the burial of Christ, it was the bruising of the heel of Jesus. But the one that bruised His heel had His head crushed. The promise was kept. And God was at work even in the darkness of the tomb, bringing about the light of salvation. Consider a comet for a moment. Comets are absolutely amazing things. They're rare. They don't come along very often at all. And when they come, they shoot through space with with this splendor, with a a vapor trail that can be more than 10,000 miles long. But it's estimated by people who know a whole lot more than I do that if we could capture and bottle that 10,000 mile long vapor trail, the amount of moisture, the amount of vapor in the bottle, if we captured it, would take up less than one cubic inch. 
So a vapor trail 10,000 miles long, the amount of vapor in that, the amount of moisture, it would take up less than one cubic inch. Yet it screams across the solar system 10,000 miles long. What an amazing example that is of what only God can do, right? But, but, friends, God did something infinitely, infinitely more amazing than that. More than, than the amazing nature of a comet or anything else that happens in space or with celestial bodies or objects. God did something more amazing than that by far in Jesus through His death through even his burial, through his time in the tomb. Jesus, Jesus took all the power of our sin and death and defeated them on a cruel cross and in a new tomb. That's what God did. That's how he was at work. And there's no one else that could do anything close to that. God did, even in Jesus' death, even in the darkness of the tomb, he did what only he could do. Why? That's the question though, right? Why would He do that for you and me? I mean, what are the odds that God being who He is, us being who we are, what are the odds, naturally speaking, that God would do something like that? Why did He do it? Love. Love. Love undeserved. Love that could never be earned. Love and grace. That's why He did it. And why did He do it this way? Why was God's plan, why was our rescue brought about in this fashion, in this way? Why did it have to be this way? Why did Jesus take all the power of our sin and death and defeat them by Himself dying on a cruel cross and being placed in a new tomb? Why that way? Why did it have to be that way? Well, we get a very clear answer in the book of Hebrews. And I want you to look at that with me. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. And this is the, the why of the what. Why was it done that way? Why did Jesus do what He did? The way He did it. Why was that the absolute necessary thing that had to take place. Hebrews 2, 14-17. The author of Hebrews says this about the coming of Jesus the way He came, about His work. Verse 14, Now since the children, that's people, us, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, we're all humans with flesh and blood, Jesus also shared in these. Why? So that through His death, He might, don't miss this, don't miss this, so that He might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is, the devil. Jesus also shared in these, in the flesh and the blood of common man. He took on flesh. We know that. That happened at what we celebrate at Christmas time that happened at the manger, he took on to himself humanity. The, the very one who made human beings took on to himself human flesh. Philippians 2 tells us all about that. He, being in the form of God, took also on to himself the form of a servant, of a slave. So Jesus also shared in these for the purpose of giving that flesh that he took on in death. 
Jesus also shared in these, these flesh and blood that mark us so that through His death He might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. Verse 15, And that He would free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Something we all fear. All of us fear it in some way or another. We're all naturally held in fear of death. And that fear of death, that reality of death, is connected to the slavery of sin. So Jesus came and He took on flesh to give that flesh on the cross all for the purpose that we just read. To destroy the one holding the power of death. To free all of us held in slavery by that fear of death. Verse 16, the author goes on, For it is clear that He does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. That's us. That's weak fallen, sinful humans. In verse 17, here's the reason for all of that being the way that it was and happening the way it did. Verse 17, therefore, he had, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. That's for you and for me. Remember that scapegoat, that sacrifice goat. Remember what John said. Look, look, there he is. The Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. That's what he did by taking them to the cross. That's why Jesus came. That's why it was done that way. That's why he took on flesh. All so that he could be the atonement for all of our sins. You see, On the cross, Jesus paid the full price. The full price of our sin debt. An eternity's worth of it. Remember that there is not a single person ever alive that ever did anything but sin completely in everything that they are and everything they do against the Holy God. So every single person, from the minute they are born inheriting the sinful nature and then choosing that sinful nature themselves, just amass and accrue all of this sin debt before the Holy God. And on the cross, Jesus paid the full price of all of it. That's why He said in that moment of victory, right before He said, into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit, right before He said that, He shouted, it is finished! And in the Greek, that's tetelestai. That's paid in full. No more debt. Colossians 2, 13-14 goes into detail about that. Describes that moment. That, that transaction being met. The debt being paid. Colossians 2, 13-14. The Apostle Paul writes there and he says this, Colossians 2.13, and you, you who were dead, who were dead in your trespasses. That's all of us. All of humanity is under that category. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, the absence of holiness, 
you God made alive together with Him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did He do it? Verse 14 tells us. He didn't just sweep it under the rug. He didn't just look the other way. God couldn't do that. If God ever did that, He would cease to be God. Because God who is perfectly gracious and perfectly loving and perfectly merciful is also and always will be perfectly just. So He had to deal with it somehow. How did He make us alive who were dead in our trespasses? How did He forgive all of our trespasses? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, which was an eternity's worth of sin. That's the record of debt that stood against us. An eternity's worth of sin. Inherited and chosen. But He canceled the record of debt, that debt that stood against us, with its legal demands. Don't miss that. Legally, before a holy God, and in line with His perfect law, Judgment had to fall on the lawbreaker. That's you and me. All of us. It had to happen legally. But verse 14 says, He canceled that record of death that stood against us with that legal demand. How did He do it? It continues. Look at the last part of verse 14 here. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And specifically, by nailing it to His Son, that was nailed on the cross. That's what He did. That's how He did it. That's how He met the legal demand for the breaking of His law and how He gave us grace and mercy. You see how both took place there? You see that? He met justice. Justice was met. Justice was satisfied. And grace was poured out on us. All by putting it all on Jesus there on the cross. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. See, that all took place at the cross. But then after the cross, in the grave, here's what God did that only God can do. In the grave, Jesus made death a door to everlasting life for every true believer. What are the odds? <laughs> what are the odds? That's what God did. He took death and He made it a door to life for all who come to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's hope. There's your hope. There's the hope that we all need and that we all crave. So what does all this mean for us? With all of this being true, what does that mean for us? What is there for us to do in response to that? Well, I want to suggest to you something very simple and yet something very profound. Since Jesus died to give us life, we need to die to self and live life through Him and for Him. That's what needs to be our response. That's the only response that makes sense in light of all of that. That we die to self, we live through Him, and for Him. Galatians 2.20 says it even better than what I could. Galatians 2.20 says this, And if you have given your life already to Jesus Christ, this is true of you. And this is how you should live. I have been crucified with Christ. 
and I no longer live. In other words, the life that I was living on my own for myself, apart from Christ, before I came to him, I, the me, the old me, the self-life, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, in other words, the the literal physical life, I, I still live in this skin, in this flesh. The life I now live in the body, having come to Christ, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You see, Christian, when you come to Christ, when you realize that He left heaven for you, that He went to the cross for you, that He took your sin and your sin debt, and it was nailed to His cross, and that over you, He said, it's finished. It's no longer on their account anymore. I've taken it, and I've given them life in place of death. When you realize that, and you claim that for yourself, you no longer live. You yourself no longer live. It's your Savior who lives in you. And therefore, the only thing that makes sense is to live the life He's given you at the cost of His life, to live the life you live for Him and through Him. So not only does He give us life, He gives us the power to live that life for Him. You don't have to try to do it on your own. And indeed, you can't. You can't. You know that. You know that. When you try to live your life for God on your own strength, on your own power, what happens? You fail. We all do. I do. And we fail miserably. We can't do it. It's too big for us. That's why not only did He save our lives and give us life, He gave us the power through His life in us to live that life for Him. That's what he did. That's what he did. So depend on it. Rest in it. Look to him. Live life through the life of the Son of God in you. That's what we all have the ability to do if we're in Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for being the promise-keeping God that you are. And I thank you so much for not being done working when Jesus died on the cross. Certainly you worked on the cross. You worked through His death. But Father, you weren't done working when He was placed in the tomb. The grave was not the end of your work. Thank you for opening a door through the death of your Son to everlasting life for all of us who believe in your Son. And as we come to your Son, not only does He give us life, but He gives us the power through His life to live our lives for Him. May that be true of us. May that mark us, O God. May we depend on the power of the life of your Son in us by the power of your Spirit in us. May we yield ourselves and surrender to the Holy Spirit in us so that we truly do live for the One who gave His life for us. All in accordance with your will and for your glory. And if there is anyone here who has not yet received the life of your Son for themselves, may this moment be the moment where they stop resisting, stop trying to live for themselves, and say, yes, God, I believe. I believe you sent Jesus for me. I believe he took my sin on himself and went to the cross. I believe he paid my debt. I believe he's the only Savior there is. 
I receive Him now. May that be the cry of of an unbelieving heart this moment, this day. And for all of the rest of us who are already in You, thank You. Thank You. Thank You. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.